Hi, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical Robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the second episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Miriam Curette. She is Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Intuitive. I also, at the same time, talked with Jillian Duncan. She is Senior Vice President of Professional Education and Program Services Worldwide at Intuitive. And in this episode, we explored how Intuitive Surgical engaged surgeons, how they convince surgeons or demonstrate it to surgeons the value of robotic surgery, the value of the da Vinci system. So it's a, it's a great conversation because for a time, it was not clear whether or not surgeons even wanted to use robots in their surgery. Clearly, Intuitive has uh, has made a strong case for that. They're, they're, they're penetrating the market and many other companies are following. So Miriam and Jillian will explain how Intuitive got it done. We'll also talk to them a bit about their backgrounds. Interestingly enough, both of them were in non-med tech jobs prior to working with Intuitive. They uh, came to know the company, they came to know DaVinci, and they decided that's how they wanted to uh, to spend their days. So great time with Miriam Caret and Jillian Duncan. I know you'll appreciate this conversation. But first, let's hear from John Kowola. He is the CEO of Boston Microfabrication. John, tell us what BMF does. BMF is an additive manufacturing company. It was started in 2017. And we started this company to address uh, a problem and an opportunity that we see out there in the market for companies that typically make parts that require very high tolerance. And, and when, I, when I talk about high tolerance, I mean you know, plus or minus you know, tens of microns. These can be larger parts, but they tend to be smaller parts in general, parts that are sort of on the millimeter scale. This is in medical device. This is in electronics. This is in uh, photonics and optics. And 3D printing has been around for 30 years, but there hasn't really been a technology to date that can effectively prototype at that scale. You know, more interestingly, uh, companies are looking to, th- to think beyond prototyping and look at additive manufacturing as an alternative to what they're using today for, for manufacturing. So that's really what we're all about. And, uh, you know, we're out there, we commercialized the technology, started selling uh, to uh, getting systems in the field, making parts for customers uh, in early 2020. For more information, go to bmf3d.com. We'll hear more from John Kowola in just a few minutes. Now let's get into this episode of Intuitive Talks. Well, Miriam Curette and Jillian Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. This is an exciting topic to hit upon. This is the second episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. And I think it's it's not to diminish from any of the others, but I have to think it's one of the more critical ones, just understanding sort of how physicians view the robotic surgery opportunity and how a company like Intuitive, like Intuitive reaches out 
and demonstrates the efficacy and the the, the benefits of the of the technology and uh, and really works to to change how healthcare is delivered. So it's a it's a tall order. Before we get into uh, all that cool stuff, though, I would love to understand starting with uh, with Miriam. Uh, Discuss a little bit about your, your roles at the company so people know from, from where you're coming. What, what do you do what, as CMO? What are your duties? Yeah, so as the chief medical officer, I actually oversee uh, quite a uh, different group of um, people. So Jillian, for example, works with me. She's in charge of uh, our professional education, and she'll talk more about that. But I also oversee clinical affairs who do clinical research studies. Um, I oversee our health economics and outcomes research group. I oversee a group of engineers uh, that are called clinical development engineers that are doing some procedure development. Uh, I oversee our regulatory and quality uh, group and our global public affairs group. Excellent. And Jillian, uh, tell us a bit about, uh, about your duties there and how do you work with Miriam? Well, as Miriam mentioned, I oversee our professional education and program services function, and that includes our customer training arm, as well as our best practices consulting group. These are the people that go in and collaborate with hospitals to figure out how to best integrate the system into their care environment. And then I'm also responsible for all of the material development associated with any of our training efforts around our technology, as well as our manufacturing of particular models that we use in our training processes. And and are you brought in, uh, are you brought in after a sale is made or are you part of the entire sales process, sort of introducing the technology, demonstrating the the effectiveness and, uh, and then support after that? Are you involved in that entire that, that entire process? Yeah, we're actually part of the entire process because we want to make sure that we are meeting the customer's needs from the very beginning. So if they have certain expectations of the technology or how they want to integrate it into their own hospital ecosystem, we want to make sure we meet those needs. And that means being part of the conversation from the very beginning. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and before we continue or, or before we get into the topics on hand about uh, about the, the the products, I do want to understand your backgrounds a bit. I love to start these podcasts just knowing a little bit of the origin stories of folks who have uh, found their way to MedTech. I've read your bios, looked at LinkedIn profiles, did all the, the due diligence that I do for these podcast interviews. It looks to me, and let's start with you, Jillian, that that uh, Intuitive was your, your first job at, at a medical device company. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Yep. It has been my first experience. How did you come to make that? Uh, how did you make the decision to join? And what was that uh, transition transition like? You know, it's funny. I came to Intuitive um, from academia, but I wasn't initially looking for a position. My brother was looking for a job and I found <laughs> Intuitive through that process of helping him. And I was just fascinated by the technology. I was really moved by the commitment to patients and the real focus on innovation. And so I decided to send in my resume and apply for a position that was available in the education group. And when I came to the office and I saw the system for the first time and I was allowed to sit down and actually use it, I I couldn't have been more excited. I mean, to me, it was the future. It was so obvious that it was going to make a huge difference in patients' lives and in practitioners' lives that I just wanted to be a part of it. So even though I loved teaching and um, I missed my students when I first <laughs> came to Intuitive, I was so compelled by the vision of the company and the technology itself. I, I just had to make the change. 
That's great. It's interesting that Gary recalled his first time touching the robot. It was an earlier prototype, of course, but in, in the oh wow factor of that. So it seems like there really is a, a, a tacit connection or, or a firm connection between uh, between the employees there and, and actually using the system, which is which is really interesting and, and cool. Miriam, as a, as a physician and a surgeon, I'd love to talk a bit about your, your background in that regard, but your path is a little more clear, but uh, let, well, let's talk first about your, your background. Uh, talk a bit about your, your, your medical background. Um, so I'm trained as a general surgeon. So I did a general surgery residency program, and then I did an extra year to learn laparoscopic surgery. Um, mm-hmm. It was, I did not, I was not taught that in my residency program. It came along after, but it was clearly so much better for patients that again, much like uh, uh, Jillian said about the robot, it was clear this was the future for surgery. And so I did that extra year of training. And I had been a, a laparoscopic general surgeon for many years when I first got introduced to the Da Vinci robotic system. And I thought that there was tremendous value for surgeons in addition to patients. So I thought mm-hmm. for patients, it was obvious, right? You could take a procedure that's now done open because it's too hard to do laparoscopically and you can use the robot to help make it a minimally invasive surgery and bring all those benefits to patients. But I also thought from an ergonomic perspective, it brought benefit to surgeons where laparoscopic surgery is very non-ergonomic. And from a learning perspective, I've always worked at a teaching hospital, having somebody learn robotics uh, to do a procedure was going to be faster for them to learn than having them learn to do it laparoscopically. So that's where I first started using the system was in my clinical practice. And I did some research with it around learning Mm -hmm. curves in particular, as well as patient outcomes. And that was my first connection with the company. And then it's my connection with them slowly built until they offered me a part-time position. And I tried it and my daughter told me I was a nicer person since I went to work for Intuitive. <laughs> okay, maybe I should listen to that and keep working for Intuitive. <laughs> well, that's quite an endorsement. What were your feelings about Da Vinci and about robot and about the robot and about the whole concept of robotic surgery just prior to, to giving it a try? Were you skeptical? Were you excited? Did you see the potential or were you saying, I don't need this, I can already... Yeah. I can already do the job. Yeah. So I am not an early adopter for anything. (laughs) So yeah, I was very skeptical. You know, I spent a long time learning my skills as a laparoscopic surgeon, and I thought I was a pretty good laparoscopic surgeon. So I could already do minimally invasive surgery and bring those benefits to patients. So why did I need the technology? And uh, interestingly enough, it was a discussion with somebody who currently works with me at the company that allowed me to see, okay, well, for bariatric surgery, which is really hard hard to do laparoscopically. And there's a lot of ergonomic issues for surgeons. And it's really hard to teach a new surgeon how to do it. Let's look at those needs and see if the robot can help fill in and address those needs. And so it was very focused for me initially. And then as I started to use it, I started to think about, oh, well, look, there can be value in this procedure and there can be value in that procedure. And then it expanded from that. But it it took a while and it took seeing some uh, data uh, before I was willing to uh, really incorporated in my practice. Well, you, I could see how you, you were convinced to become a, a client. I'm curious what, what convinced you to become part of the story and, and, and a senior executive at, at this company? Mm-hmm. Now let's take a quick break from this interview to hear a little more from our sponsor, 
Boston Microfabrication. John Kawola is the CEO. John, what makes BMF's approach unique? So 3D printing has been around for 30 years, and there's a number of different uh, sort of core technologies that uh, have been developed from extrusion to, to photopolymers, to metals, to powders. We're different, really, uh, than anything that exists on the market today. We've taken a, a general concept that's used with some other manufacturers, and we're using a photopolymer process, but we've added a number of different components and features. One is a high-precision lens. Two is a very highly controlled XYZ movement, because people care about resolution, but they also care very much about accuracy and precision. And that's what really makes us different from what's available on the market today. That's great. And final question, John, where does this all fit into medical devices? Because we're addressing needs in the marketplace for high precision, accuracy, again, that falls into a bunch of different vertical markets. But medical device is very much an area that is looking to miniaturize, whether that's uh, drug delivery devices, whether that's monitoring devices. These are all areas that medical device manufacturers have been chasing for years to be able to get things smaller, to be able to miniaturize. Things like uh, sensors and uh, diagnostic devices are all getting smaller. Lenses are getting smaller. But what's, what is challenging is often the packaging and the, the, the plastic uh, components on the polymers that sort of house those, those components. So what we're finding is a, re- a real need for addressing that drive to miniaturization. A very good example is endoscope heads. So that sort of the tip of an endoscope, typically it's a very complex, small part with uh, holes and features on both sides of the part, uh, challenging to mold, expensive to mold. Uh, endoscope heads are a very good example of something that's also a consumable item, typically use it once for procedure. So that's very, you know, well within the reach of what's capable of that additive manufacturing. So we have a number of different uh, companies you know, looking at this and saying, one, it's ideal to prototype, but two, to really looking for this as an alternative to current uh, manufacturing methods, which is primarily injection molding, again, is expensive um, and time-consuming, and 3D printing is a nice, could, could potentially be a nice alternative. All right. Thanks again to John Koala and BMF for sponsoring this podcast. Again, go to bmf3d.com for more information. Well, you, I could see how you, you were convinced to become a, a client. I'm curious, what, what convinced you to become part of the story and, and, and a senior executive at, at this company? What was it, other than your daughter's, your daughter's desire to, to see you happier? Uh, what else, what else put, put you on that path? You know, it's really the people I work with. The, the people at Intuitive are really, really intelligent people who are creative. They're great problem solvers. And the company's aligned around a mission that resonated with me, right? I have impacted patients' lives one-on-one for many, many mm-hmm. years. And here I had the opportunity to be able to do that on a much bigger bigger scale. Uh, so it was really what I did day to day and the people I worked with um, and the challenges and the problems and the satisfaction that came from solving them. And you do you currently still practice? Do you still perform surgery? I do. I work at the Veterans Administration Hospital here in Palo Alto, um, and I do both robotic and laparoscopic cases. I'm wondering, are there any lessons you learned uh maybe perspectives as a surgeon of industry that, that, or maybe misperceptions that have been cleared up for you making that switch and, and vice versa as a member of industry, do you find yourself sort of sometimes defending surgeons saying, well, listen, I know it looks like this, but it may be that. 
Uh, yes to both. <laughs> I came in with a lot of biases about industry, very negative biases about industry. And I was very fortunate that, you know, intuitive did not fit any of those uh, biases. So I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about um in terms of the product, you know, as a surgeon, you think the engineers can solve anything. And well, why can't you give me this? Or why can't you give me that? And realizing the trade-offs that you have to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, the, you know, just as an example, now as an executive, we have so many projects that we know will help patients, but we can't do them all. So we have to make business decisions related to which group of patients are we going to actually help, which means there's a group you're not going to help. And that's hard to deal with. It's hard as a surgeon to deal with. It's hard for the executives and the people who work here to say, no, but this will help patients. We have to find a way to do it. So I think that decision making uh, becomes very complex when you have so many great ideas about what could potentially help patients. Really, really fascinating. And then from, from looking back at surgeons, oh, my God, surgeons have big egos. <laughs> and I guess I knew that, but I didn't completely know that until I stepped away from that. <laughs> well, I, I think if anyone needs a big ego, it's someone who's doing the, the work that they do. They have to certainly feel certain about themselves. I certainly want them to feel certain about themselves. Uh, so that's that's great. So let's talk a bit about, well, let's, let's talk about, about maybe not the ego, but but surgeons and, and their their willingness to adopt new technologies. I mean that they will they will adopt new metal devices, new tools, new surgical tools eventually if they're if they're proven to work. Uh, we've seen that happen. Does surgical robotics sort of follow that same path that if it's proven to work, they will eventually use it? Or is it, and I imagine it is very different because you're not giving them a sharper scalpel. You're telling them to do their, their procedures completely differently. How does, how does the adoption of surgical robotics and da Vinci sort of map to traditional medical device uh, adoption? Yeah, I think it maps pretty well to any disruptive technology, right? You're going to have the early adopters who are willing to see the potential in something and give it a try and are willing to deal with, you know, the the fact that it's a a first generation platform, deal with the fact that it's not fully capable yet, because they can see where it can go and what it can do. Um, And then you've got the people who learn from those early adopters, but want to see some data. And then you have people who, you know, you're just never going to convince them. You have to wait till they retire um, or, or move on. So I think it does follow the typical adoption curve. And, you know, each group has its own challenges that you have to deal with as a, as a medical device. I think one thing Intuitive has gotten better at is anticipating what the majority will need in terms of data and starting to invest early in studies so that that data is there when it gets to that part of the adoption curve. Well, Jillian, you're involved in training. I'm wondering how are surgeons that you've worked with, how are they approaching the training? How are they sort of coming into the the whole um, process of of trying to understand surgical robotics? Are they coming, kicking and screaming? Are they excited about the, the potential? Uh, I imagine it's a mix of both, but uh, which, which group is... Uh, is better represented than folks who come to work with you on on understanding how to use DaVinci? I think by the time they get to actually training, they see the value of the technology and have ideas of how they want to apply it in their practice. But that actually starts in phase one of our pathway. So our training pathway consists of four phases. And in that first phase, it's about 
their exposure to the system itself. They watch videos to see how the system has been applied by other experts within the field and really make the decision for themselves. Is this the technology for me? Am I willing to commit the time that's necessary in order to get through the learning curve and use it with my patients safely? And that's a decision the surgeon has to make for themselves because it is mm -hmm. a learning commitment. And they will come from various backgrounds. They may be trained only with open. They may be very accomplished with laparoscopic surgery, but all understand that integrating the robot is going to require some additional learning. So after they decide, yeah, you know, this is this is good. I think I want to apply it to my patient population. Then they enter phase two of our training pathway. And that's really where we get down to the nuts and the bolts of the technology. They watch online videos. They take assessments. They go through in-servicing at their hospital, which is hands-on with the system. What do the buttons do? How do the ergonomics work? When I sit at the console, mm -hmm. what's it going to be like for me? And then they do skills drills on a dry model. They use simulations so they understand how to actually manipulate the masters within the surgeon console. And then they finally make it to the lab after going through all of those steps. And that's when they apply the technology to various models that we have. And that's oftentimes where the light bulb goes off for the surgeon about what they're going to need to change. And we're really there to show them how the technology works and how they can operate it safely. It's the surgeon who's going to determine how it is integrated into their operating room. And to help them with that, we tie them to other surgeon experts. So that's where they really get the clinical part of their training. It comes from courses that are led by surgeon hosts, who have extensive experience with robotic surgery in their area of practice. And we treat it kind of like a college mm -hmm. curriculum. You start with the 100 course, which is here's your basic technology. And then you go through a progression where your understanding of the clinical application becomes more and more advanced until you reach mastery. And that's really phase three, which is that initial case series with Proctor and coaching from experts, and then phase four, where you're out truly operating, going to society events, getting more mastery experiences. Great. I think throughout that process, you see the, the surgeon's thoughts about the robot change, and they eventually have a very clear idea about how they want to use it. It's not so much us telling them, it's them deciding this patient is going to be the right patient for this technology. And maybe this patient requires a different mode of operation and that's okay. That's that's interesting. And that kind of leads to the question I want to ask you, Mary. I mean, going back to your first use of the system or even your current use, we all, we all, to, to a less critical degree, we all bring new technologies into our lives. We have new podcast editing software, a new phone that sometimes it's like, okay, I, you know, this, this works a little bit better or okay, I can make this work. Or sometimes you get a technology that just, that just immediately finds its way into your heart and you can't imagine working without it. Where does, in your experience, perhaps speaks personally, but then maybe we can expand it to the surgeon you work with. Where does DaVinci sort of fall in? Is it, is it something that once you've kind of grown to love it, you just, you just can't imagine working without it? Or is it something that is just a different way of, of doing a procedure that you're, uh, that you've done before? You know, for me, again, not an early adopter. Yeah. I was one of those people who was stopping at gas stations because I wasn't going to get a cell phone. I just, I thought, Amen, no, me I too. <laughs> um, so, um, 
it took me a while to start using the system, but once I did, the uh, benefits became very obvious. And then I think I would echo what Jillian said. You start thinking about, oh my gosh, it would bring value here. It would bring value there. I should try this. So, I, and I think it's, it's like that for a lot of surgeons, right? Whether they're open to the idea or not open to the idea, once they get on it and start using it and get more comfortable for it, then it opens up a whole realm of possibilities about where else it can bring. Value. So let's talk about how you've been able to build uh, inroads into hospitals in, in the OR. What has that process been like, that, that outreach? Uh, and what is the story that, that you're, you're telling them? Uh, I don't know how specific you can get, but I really like to understand this isn't, this isn't a, a salesperson with a bag <laughs> walking in. This is a story that you really have to sell to, a, to an institution. Can you talk a bit about what that, that process is like? I think what's most important to understand is the alignment with the customer's mission. So they have a mission that they are focused on, and we need to make sure that our technology fits into that mission. So whether it's advancing quality of care, of course, the quad aim is a direct focus of many hospitals. So we want to make sure that we fit into their goals. And that takes a lot of discussion with the hospitals and a deep understanding that it's not just about a robot. It's about establishing a program within the hospital, bringing them an entire ecosystem that's going to include not only the technology, but the training, the peer-to-peer interaction that's required, the digital analytics so they can analyze the effectiveness of their program, decide where they want to invest further, and also the integration of software, the system support, all of those elements come into building that relationship and trust with the customer and making sure that that investment in robotic surgery in DaVinci or ION is the right thing for their mission. So it really comes down to maintaining that close alignment. And once you have that, the hospital is welcoming you in because you're a collaborator. You're Mm -hmm. not selling them something. You're collaborating with them to get the best patient care possible in their environment. Mary, if we could kind of pursue this a little further, I'm curious, how are hospitals viewing robotic surgery nowadays? Has it changed from where it was? I imagine it must from 10 or 15 years ago. Are they more open to the possibility or is there still sort of a reluctance that you have to have to overcome? I think they are definitely more open to it. Uh, I do still think there is a reluctance to it. And I think what we have found is working with an individual hospital and looking at their own data. So how much open surgery are they actually really doing? What are their outcomes like? Like what are their conversion rates with laparoscopic surgery and how can we improve that? So it goes to what Jillian said is what are the needs? Where, where are the problems they're, they're trying to solve? How can we look at their own data to see where they are and then show them how they can improve uh, with robotics? And I think that that's probably... What I'm surprised at is the biggest change is that hospitals are willing to look at their data with us and then work together to solve whatever problem they have. They're much more open to that uh, working collaboratively than you know when the company first started 25 years ago. So that, that first interaction is it is an opportunity to sort of get the conversation going and then they bring you in and they share data with you and you sort of run it through your models to demonstrate how things could be different using a a DaVinci or or an ION system? Is that sort of the part of the conversation? That is part of the conversation. You know, it's conversations with the surgeons and also conversations Mm -hmm. with hospital executives. And of course, their needs are different. 
So our approaches are different, um, but ultimately both conversations center on what are you trying to fix? Where, where are mm-hmm. your gaps? What are the problems you're having with getting the outcomes you want? And how can a Da Vinci system help solve those issues and make your patient care and your patient care outcomes better? And is there uh, one point that tends to close a deal? Is it uh, isn't the the the, the patient um, better better treatment for patients? Is it a financial thing? I imagine it's a combination of both. But what is what do you find is winning people over when they decide that this is the the path they want to take? Yeah, you have to have the improvement in patient care. And without yeah. that, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You can have great economics, but if it doesn't do anything for patient care, they're not going to go forward. And then uh, the second one is the finances. And so part of the analysis of data is if, if you do more patients minimally invasive, so you decrease your open rate, you get the patients out of the hospital sooner, they have less complications. Overall, that's financially good for the hospital as well as being good for the patient. Um, mm-hmm. So they are they are tied. The finances and the patient outcomes are tied. And Jillian, you, you talked a lot about training before. I kind of want to just follow that up a little bit more. What is once a cop, once a hospital has decided to to go with intuitive, uh, what is the commitment like for the surgeons to train to uh, to 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 I guess probably retrain? I imagine there's new procedures that they have to. I don't know if there's certification or what, but is it? I imagine it's a significant commitment commitment for a surgeon to uh, to understand how to use this this system and then continue to improve upon their performance with it. It's definitely a significant commitment, and that's why we make sure that they completely understand what the process is like, those four phases I described to you earlier. We sit down with them and talk through each aspect, the technology they'll have access to in order to proceed through the learning curve, um, as well as the support that they'll have once they start operating on patients at their hospital, whether it is in-person proctoring, whether it's remote proctoring, additional case observation, as you mentioned, if you want to adapt some new procedures, then you may do some case observations with an expert in the field who can talk you through some of that different anatomy, for example, you may encounter. Um, So we make sure that the customer understands that they have access to all of that material, including videos, and that we're there to help them as they take each of those steps. We also align directly with societies Mm -hmm. and academic medical centers to make sure that we are continually offering courses that are focused on advanced skills so that it's not just about that first training and that first 10 cases. It's about continuing to develop your skills and advance throughout your career. And, and that's really the point, honestly, of the that fourth phase is continuing those touch points with the surgeon and the OR staff who is essential. It's just as important as they be well-trained as the surgeon in order to find success every time you're in that operating room. And I would think that nowadays you're able to build online communities of some sorts. I imagine is peer-to-peer an essential part of, of this support, getting other surgeons to help you through a problem or a roadblock if you, if you come upon it. And how do you, how does intuitive use technology to sort of, to bridge that gap between, uh, between surgeons? So peer to peer is absolutely essential to, to the training process. Uh, We train on the technology and then we collaborate very closely with surgeon experts 
in order to ensure that that clinical piece is well covered for our customers. And we leverage all different types of technology. During COVID, for example, we really had to shift Mm -hmm. and be able to do a lot of training virtually. And that included engaging surgeons in delivering didactic sessions, walking through their own videos in order to demonstrate how they handled particularly challenging cases and allow for that dialogue in small groups between surgeons to facilitate learning across all of them, including the experts. And then we also do procedure simulation, which allows them to follow a procedure similar to how it might be done by a more advanced surgeon. Then we've got um, intuitive telepresence, which allows for the remote proctoring I was mentioning earlier, as well as remote case observation. So a surgeon can pipe right into the operating room with another surgeon and either watch that procedure if they are the learner or if they're the proctor, they can help guide the surgeon as they go through their case of the day. And that could be multiple times during the day that they engage with that other surgeon as they are making their way through the case log. I, I used to open up my interviews with the COVID question, then I kind of moved it down toward the end of the interview, and I was trying trying not to bring it up anymore, but I, I was wondering how COVID impacted things. The system in which you're able to, uh, the surgeons are able to interact via telecommunications, is it a proprietary system? Obviously, we've seen a lot of outside vendors who have created technologies that allow sales reps or other surgeons to 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 be part of a surgical procedure someplace else or in a building they're not in. Do you have your own system for that or are you working with another company? We do have our own system. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's uh, look to the future. Miriam, you're, uh, you're still on the front lines performing procedures. You're, are you still teaching at Stanford as well? I do. Um, so when I do cases, I'm working with either a fellow or a resident. So a trainee, yes. Okay. So we haven't seen uh, as as quick an adoption of uh, surgical robotics as, as I thought we would, or at least when I heard the percentage recently, I think it was five or 10% of procedures. Maybe you have this on hand, but it's a small fraction of the procedures that are done are done with the assistance of a robot. Obviously, Intuitive is going great guns. We're seeing other others step into the field and, and offer their own services. What does the future look like? Do, do younger surgeons have an appreciation for technology that will help accelerate adoption of surgical robotics? Uh, There are other factors at play that may make the adoption happen more quickly than it has in the past. Uh, What do you see happening in the future? I think that definitely uh, younger surgeons, surgeons in training are very eager to learn how to use the system. And then when they finish their training, they are going to use the system and they're going to use it for a lot more cases. Right now, I Mm -hmm. think many surgeons just select the hardest cases uh, to use it for. And I think people who get trained from the beginning will use it for all of their cases. So I think we'll continue to see more and more cases that um, we are currently already in being done robotically. Um, And I think as competition comes in, there will be other people who will start to use um, robotics and start to use it for cases that they currently don't. But I think one of the things that's most exciting about the future is what kinds of cases aren't using robotics now, Mm -hmm. where potentially there could be some real benefit to it. And where can we use things like AI or ML 
to help collect information and feed it back and help the surgeon make better decisions. You know, can we use um, imaging agents that allow the surgeons to see things they can't see right now? Could they see cancer cells? Could they see nerve cells? Could that help them do a better cancer operation with a better functional outcome? So mm -hmm. I think it, even though the technology has been around for 25 years, what's most exciting is where is it going to go from here, right? And, and the potential growth uh, and the potential numbers of patients who could be positively impacted is uh, uh, tremendously big. And I think that's what, to me, is what's most exciting. That's great. No, it does it does feel like we're just beginning to, to scratch the surface yeah. of this. So uh, excellent. Well, this has been a, a fun conversation and fascinating. Miriam and Jillian, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tom. And that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to Miriam and Jillian for joining us and for BMF for sponsoring. To listen to future episodes of Intuitive Talks, make sure you subscribe to our Device Talks podcast channel. You can do that on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. You can also follow me on social media. We'll be posting that there. I am MedTechTom on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi at Device Talks. If you want to find the podcast, you can also go to devicetalks.com. We'll have all of our podcasts listed there, as well as information on our upcoming Device Talks events, both in person and virtual. That's a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on the Intuitive Talks podcast. Tune in next month. We'll have another great episode waiting for you. 